418, Chapter 25 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 826. Welcome to Craplet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover. And I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 418, As You Wish. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. I hope you are well. Yes, I am here. I am here this week. I am here this week because even though my sister had her baby, we are still kind of on hold. Everyone up there has the flu. Everyone down here is starting to get cold viruses. And so we're kind of waiting to see what we should do next. But there is a baby, an eight pound, eight ounce, gorgeous little baby boy named Wesley Charles. And even though he's Wesley without a T, we all thought Dread Pirate Roberts, right? So, thus the as you wish for this episode. So, yay for my new little nephew, and yay for my sister getting this monster out of her, and yay for us because we have a great chapter this week. Now, because everything is kind of up in the air, everything is also having to go much quicker than normal. So, this week is another one of those streamlined episodes, but that's okay because. I do, however, have a little bit of housekeeping that we need to deal with before we get to our crafty chat and our book. The first is I got a voicemail from Barbara. I don't want to give anything away, but Barbara, this week's chapter is the first chapter that does what you're talking about. So after we listen, I'll tell everybody what you said because you're right. And we got a very important voicemail from Mary, which I'm going to play for you right now. So here you go. Mary. Hi, Heather. This is Mary, um, otherwise Twizzle on Ravelry. Just listening to the latest Count of Monte Cristo, which I think is 417, and got kind of distressed. The translation that is being read kept referring to his speed in knots per hour, which is an acceleration, not a speed. Anyway, just sticking my head up. Take care. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying this. Bye-bye. I am so glad Mary called in with that because I'll tell you, every time it went by, I kept thinking, really? Huh. And I just chalked it up to the fact that I've never completely understood nautical speed or distance or anything like that. So I went back and I looked in the newer translation. It is quite definitely two and a half leagues per hour, which makes a lot more sense, right? Yeah. So that was either a Victorian mistranslation or misspeaking. I'm not sure which, but Mary's right. I also got a voicemail from Alyssa saying that she's back listening to The Scarlet Letter. She must be listening to stuff now as well because she knew that we had a voicemail line and Scarlet Letter was back in 2009. She said that for episode 137, it's actually playing an episode of Pride and Prejudice. I went on every device I've got and every feed I could find, and I'm not having this problem. If anyone else can replicate this, can you please email me at heather at or ping me on Facebook or, or something and let me know where, like a, a link or an app name, where this happened to you because this is very strange. And I went back and I looked 
to make sure that the actual source file is correct, and it is. So I don't know what's going on. That's weird. But here we go with a little bit of crafty chat for you, and then we'll get to our book. Here we go. So that's just, you know, kind of a general flavor of average booth at our wool festival. This was super cool. So knitting my way home. She has kits available with a wool linen blend to spin. So you spin an oatmeal yarn, and then you spin a color-progressing yarn, and she steps you through. She has this kit that steps you through spinning the yarn to knit this crazed Scandinavian called Cowl by Wendy Johnson. Yeah, and it was stunning. And it's really long. It's long enough to make a big double loop around your head, and it's knit in the round. That is on my, like, Christmas wish list now. <laughs> Lifetime achievement project for me. <laughs> that is... It would take me forever, but I would. it would be fun. Yeah. I thought that was pretty stunning. It looks like a cross stitch sampler. It's so <clears throat> doesn't it? Done. It's amazing. Yeah, I know. And I, like I said, it's a it's a pattern by Wendy Johnson, and she has permission from Wendy Johnson to sell the kits, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I liked that one a lot. Well, that seriously? <laughs> did you take a picture of that? Yes, it's a full size deer head that somebody felt it. And, and it won first place. It won first place. And it's mounted on a, you know, like, you'd mount a real deer head on the wall. I love Oops. this. Uh, that looks like real antlers on there. They are real antlers on there. It is a real rack, yeah. That's awesome. No wonder it won. <laughs> and it's so detailed. The And the, the, like, shading, like, in the ears and around the, the muzzle and things, it's kind of, yeah. They yeah. did a really, really good job. That's crazy. <clears throat> wow. Yeah, I would love to be able to say I had made something like that, but I would not <laughs> enjoy making it. I, it must have taken a really long time, and the eyes were, it really looked like it was looking at you. <laughs> that is so, so cool. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's totally the kind of thing for, for somebody who doesn't want to actually, you know, have a deer head in their house, but they want to get <laughs> a rustic look. <laughs> you can felt yourself one. <laughs> The Gaston wall look. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Put out a fiber. <laughs> I like that. So that's a walk through our little local wool festival. And now I bought just a couple things. So the one thing that I needed was I told you I thought my ten year old was playing with my dry band <laughs> on my Louette. So I got a new one. <laughs> because the lovely ladies at Milky Fiberworks. Do you guys know the Milkies? They're awesome. You know yeah, them? All They're of them. fantastic. Yeah. You know, they live in Wisconsin and they are just this the awesomest set of Mennonite sisters you'll ever meet. Yes, they are. <laughs> that have a really a very comprehensive knowledge of all things fibery. And they run if you can't find it, go to them and I guarantee you they will have it or know how to get it relatively quickly. Plus they're right. awesomely nice and really, really oh. fun. Yes, they are. They are. Yeah, I definitely agree. So while I was waiting in line, somebody in front of me was buying some fiber. <laughs> uh -oh. So this might have come up with me. Ooh, pretty. Oh, those are ocean colors. Now. That is the, what the colorway is called. See, look, there's the little tag. Hey, look at that. It's called ocean. <laughs> it's called ocean. Yeah, and, and it, so it's got silk in it. Those at home. It's a merino silk 
they call it a roving. It's so it's a merino silk roving. And the and it's the got silk, all the white parts. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. so the white the white really glistens. The silk yeah. Really glistens. Yep. Yeah, and it's blues and purples and greens. So that'll be fun. And it's four ounces. It's really super dense because it, the ball itself is not that big, no. but it's very dense. So I'm gonna be interested to see what that spins up like. Okay. Chapter 25. Here's the weird thing about Chapter 25. (laughs) Every single source that I've looked at has a different name for it, so I have no idea what's going on. And in fact, I started digging through everything I could find, like Cliff's Notes, everything. Cliff's Notes doesn't even have the numbers right. The only thing I can think is that they must have been using an abridged version or something. I don't know what's going on, but either way, Nobody has the same chapter title. And there were several places where there were kind of interesting differences in how things were described. But once again, I kind of like the Victorian one a little bit better. But almost everything else just has to come after we listen to the chapter because this one's a fun one. All right. So here we go. We are picking up right where we left off. Edmund has gotten the treasure. He is set for life in such a huge way. And now he just has to wait for his smuggler guys to show up and take him off the rock. So that's where we're picking up the next morning. Here we go with chapter 25 of The Count of Monte Cristo, variously known as The Stranger, The Unknown, Back to Marseillaise, (laughs) and more. But that gives you an idea of what's going on. Here we go. Chapter 25, The Unknown. Day, for which Dante had so eagerly and impatiently awaited with open eyes, again dawned. With the first light, Dante resumed his search. Again he climbed the rocky height he had ascended the previous evening, and strained his view to catch every peculiarity of the landscape. But it wore the same wild, barren aspect when seen by the rays of the morning sun, which it had done when surveyed by the fading glimmer of eve. Descending into the grotto, He lifted the stone, filled his pockets with gems, put the box together as well and securely as he could, sprinkled fresh sand over the spot from which it had been taken, and then carefully trod down the earth to give it everywhere a uniform appearance. Then, quitting the grotto, he replaced the stone, heaping on it broken masses of rocks and rough fragments of crumbling granite, filling the interstices with earth into which he deftly inserted rapidly growing plants, such as the wild myrtle and flowering thorn. Then carefully watering these new plantations, he scrupulously effaced every trace of footsteps, leaving the approach to the cavern as savage-looking and untrodden as he had found it. This done, he impatiently awaited the return of his companions. To wait at Monte Cristo, for the purpose of watching like a dragon over the almost incalculable riches that had thus fallen into his possession, satisfied not the cravings of his heart, which yearned to return to dwell among mankind, and to assume the rank, power, and influence which are always accorded to wealth, that first and greatest of all the forces within the grasp of man. On the sixth day, the smugglers returned. From a distance, Dante recognized the rig and handling of the young Amelia, and dragging himself with affected difficulty towards the landing place, he met his companions, with an assurance that, although considerably better than when they quitted him, 
he still suffered acutely from his late accident. He then inquired how they had fared in their trip. To this question, the smugglers replied that, although successful in landing their cargo in safety, they had scarcely done so when they received intelligence that a guard ship had just quitted the port of Toulon and was crowding all sail towards them. This obliged them to make all speed they could to evade the enemy, when they could but lament the absence of Dante, whose superior skill in the management of a vessel would have availed them so materially. In fact, the pursuing vessel had almost overtaken them when fortunately night came on and enabled them to double the Cape of Corsica and so elude all further pursuit. Upon the whole, however, the trip had been sufficiently successful to satisfy all concerned. While the crew, and particularly Jacopo, expressed great regrets that Dante had not been an equal sharer with themselves in the profits, which amounted to no less than a sum than fifty piastre each, Edmund preserved the most admirable self-command, not suffering the faintest indication of a smile to escape him at the enumeration of all the benefits he would have reaped had he been able to quit the island. But as the young Amelia had merely come to Monte Cristo to fetch him away, he embarked that same evening and proceeded with the captain to Leghorn. Arrived at Leghorn, he repaired to the house of a Jew, a dealer in precious stones, to whom he disposed of four of his smallest diamonds for five thousand francs each. Dante half feared that such valuable jewels in the hands of a poor sailor like himself might excite suspicion. But the cunning purchaser asked no troublesome questions concerning a bargain by which he gained a round profit of at least eighty per cent. The following day, Dante presented Jacopo with an entirely new vessel, accompanying the gift by a donation of one hundred piastres that he might provide himself with a suitable crew and other requisites for his outfit, upon condition that he would go at once to Marseille for the purpose of inquiring after an old man named Louis Dante, residing in the Allée de Meillon, and also a young woman called Mercedes, an inhabitant of the Catalan village. Jacopo could scarcely believe his senses, at receiving this magnificent present, which Dante hastened to account for by saying that he had merely been a sailor from whim and a desire to spite his family, who did not allow him as much money as he liked to spend, but that on his arrival at Leghorn he had come into possession of a large fortune left him by an uncle whose sole heir he was. The superior education of Dante gave an air of such extreme probability to this statement that it never once occurred to Jacopo to doubt its accuracy. The term for which Edmond had engaged to serve on board the young Amelia having expired, Dante took leave of the captain, who at first tried all his powers of persuasion to induce him to remain as one of the crew. But having been told the history of the legacy, he ceased to importune him further. The following morning, Jacopo set sail for Marseille with directions from Dante to join him at the island of Monte Cristo. Having seen Jacopo fairly out of the harbour, Dante proceeded to make his final adieu on board the young Amelia, distributing so liberal a gratuity among her crew as to secure for him the good wishes of all and expressions of cordial interest in all that concerned him. To the captain he promised to write when he had made up his mind as to his future plans. Then Dante departed for Genoa, 
At the moment of his arrival, a small yacht was under trial in the bay. This yacht had been built by order of an Englishman, who, having heard that the Genoese excelled all other builders along the shores of the Mediterranean in construction of fast-sailing vessels, was desirous of possessing a specimen of their skill. The price agreed upon between the Englishman and the Genoese builder was 40,000 francs. Dante, struck with the beauty and capability of the little vessel, applied to its owner to transfer it to him, offering 60,000 francs upon condition that he should be allowed to take immediate possession. The proposal was too advantageous to be refused, the more so as the person for whom the yacht was intended had gone upon a tour through Switzerland and was not expected back in less than three weeks or a month, by which time the builder reckoned upon being able to complete another. A bargain was therefore struck. Dante led the owner of the yacht to the dwelling of a Jew, retired with the latter for a few minutes to a small black-backed parlour, and upon their return the Jew counted out to the shipbuilder the sum of 60,000 francs in bright gold pieces. The delighted builder then offered his services in providing a suitable crew for the little vessel. But this Dante declined with many thanks, saying he was accustomed to cruise about quite alone, and his principal pleasure consisted in managing his yacht himself. The only thing the builder could oblige him in would be to contrive a sort of secret closet in the cabin at his bed's head, the closet to contain three divisions, so constructed as to be concealed from all but himself. The builder cheerfully undertook the commission, and promised to have these secret places completed by the next day. Dante furnishing the dimensions and plan in accordance with which they were to be constructed. The following day, Dante sailed with his yacht from Genoa, under the inspection of an immense crowd, drawn together by curiosity to see the rich Spanish nobleman who preferred managing his own yacht but their wonder was soon changed to admiration at seeing the perfect skill with which Dante handled the helm. The boat indeed seemed to be animated with almost human intelligence, so promptly did it obey the slightest touch. And Dante required but a short trial of his beautiful craft to acknowledge that the Genoese had not without reason attained their high reputation in the art of shipbuilding. The spectators followed the little vessel with their eyes as long as it remained visible, they then turned their conjectures upon her probable destination. Some insisted she was making for Corsica, others the island of Elba. Bets were offered to any amount that she was bound for Spain, while Africa was positively reported by many persons as her intended course. But no one thought of Monte Cristo. Yet thither it was that Dante guided his vessel, and at Monte Cristo he arrived at the close of the second day. His boat had proved herself a first-class sailor, and had come the distance from Genoa in thirty-five hours. Dante had carefully noted the general appearance of the shore, and instead of landing at the usual place, he dropped anchor in the little creek. The island was utterly deserted, and bore no evidence of having been visited since he went away. His treasure was just as he had left it. Early on the following morning he commenced the removal of his riches, and ere nightfall the whole of his immense wealth was safely deposited in the compartments of the secret locker. A week passed by. Dante employed it in manoeuvring his yacht around the island, studying it as a skilful horseman would the animal he destined for some important service, till at the end of that time 
he was perfectly conversant with its good and bad qualities. The former Dante proposed to augment, the latter to remedy. Upon the eighth day he discerned a small vessel under full sail approaching Monte Cristo. As it drew near, he recognized it as the boat he had given to Jacopo. He immediately signaled it. His signal was returned, and in two hours afterwards the newcomer lay at anchor beside the yacht. A mournful answer awaited each of Edmond's eager inquiries as to the information Jacopo had obtained. Old Dante was dead, and Mercedes had disappeared. Dante listened to these melancholy tidings with outward calmness, but leaping lightly ashore, he signified his desire to be quite alone. In a couple of hours he returned. Two of the men from Jacopo's boat came on board the yacht to assist in navigating it, and he gave orders that she should be steered direct to Marseilles. For his father's death he was in some manner prepared, but he knew not how to account for the mysterious disappearance of Mercedes. Without divulging his secret, Dante could not give sufficiently clear instructions to an agent. There were, besides, other particulars he was desirous of ascertaining, and those were of a nature he alone could investigate, in a manner satisfactory to himself. His looking-glass had assured him during his stay at Leghorn that he ran no risk of recognition. Moreover, he had now the means of adopting any disguise he thought proper. One fine morning, then, his yacht, followed by the little fishing-boat, boldly entered the port of Marseilles and anchored exactly opposite the spot, from whence on the never-to-be-forgotten night of his departure for the Chateau d'If, he had been put on board the boat destined to convey him thither. Still Dante could not view without a shudder the approach of a gendarme who accompanied the officers deputed to demand his bill of health ere the yacht was permitted to hold communication with the shore. But with that perfect self-possession he had acquired during his acquaintance with Faria, Dante coolly presented an English passport he had obtained from Leghorn, and as this gave him a standing which a French passport would not have afforded, he was informed that there existed no obstacle to his immediate debarkation. The first person to attract the attention of Dante as he landed on the Canabière was one of the crew belonging to the Ferroan. Edmond welcomed the meeting with this fellow, who had been one of his own sailors, as a sure means of testing the extent of the change which time had worked in his own appearance. Going straight towards him, he propounded a variety of questions on different subjects, carefully watching the man's countenance as he did so, but not a word or look implied that he had the slightest idea of ever having seen before the person with whom he was conversing. Giving the sailor a piece of money in return for his civility, Dante proceeded onwards, but ere he had gone many steps, he heard the man loudly calling him to stop. Dante instantly turned to meet him. "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said the honest fellow in almost breathless haste. "'But I believe you made a mistake. You intended to give me a two-franc piece. And see, you gave me a double Napoleon.' "'Thank you, my good friend. I see that I have made a trifling mistake, as you say. But by way of rewarding your honesty.' I give you another double Napoleon, that you may drink to my health, and be able to ask your messmates to join you. So extreme was the surprise of the sailor, that he was unable even to thank Edmond, whose receding figure he continued to gaze after in speechless astonishment.
Some uh, nebob from India, was his comment. Dante, meanwhile, went on his way. Each step he trod oppressed his heart with fresh emotion. His first and most indelible recollections were there. Not a tree, not a street that he passed, but seemed filled with dear and cherished memories, and thus he proceeded onwards till he arrived at the end of the Rue de Noailles, from whence a full view of the Allée de Meillon was obtained. At this spot, so pregnant with fond and filial remembrances, his heart beat almost to bursting. His knees tottered under him, a mist floated over his sight, and had he not clung for support to one of the trees, he would inevitably have fallen to the ground and been crushed beneath the many vehicles continually passing there. Recovering himself, however, he wiped the perspiration from his brows and stopped not again till he found himself at the door of the house in which his father had lived. The nasturtiums and other plants which his father had delighted to train before his window had all disappeared from the upper part of the house. Leaning against a tree, he gazed thoughtfully for a time at the upper stories of the shabby little house. Then he advanced to the door and asked whether there were any rooms to be let. Though answered in the negative, he begged so earnestly to be permitted to visit those on the fifth floor that in despite of the oft-repeated assurance of the concierge that they were occupied, Dante succeeded in inducing the man to go up to the tenants and ask permission for a gentleman to be allowed to look at them. The tenants of the humble lodging were a young couple who had been scarcely married a week, and seeing them, Dante sighed heavily. Nothing in the two small chambers forming the apartments remained as it had been in the time of the elder Dante. The very paper was different, while the articles of antiquated furniture with which the rooms had been filled in Edmond's time had all disappeared. The four walls alone remained as he had left them, the bed, belonging to the present occupants, was placed as the former owner of the chamber had been accustomed to have his, and in despite of his efforts to prevent it, the eyes of Edmond were suffused in tears, as he reflected that on that spot the old man had breathed his last, vainly calling for his son. The young couple gazed with astonishment at the sight of their visitor's emotion and wondered to see the large tears silently chasing each other down his otherwise stern and immovable features. But they felt the sacredness of his grief and kindly refrained from questioning him as to its cause, while with instinctive delicacy they left him to indulge his sorrow alone. When he withdrew from the scene of his painful recollections, they both accompanied him downstairs, reiterating their hope that he would come again whenever he pleased, and assuring him that their poor dwelling would ever be open to him. As Edmond passed the door on the fourth floor, he paused to inquire whether Caderousse, the tailor, still dwelt there, but he received for reply that the person in question had got into difficulties, and at the present time kept a small inn on the route from Bellegarde to Beaucaire. Having obtained the address of the person to whom the house in the Allée de Meillon belonged, Dante next proceeded thither, and under the name of the Lord Wilmore, the name and title inscribed on his passport, purchased the small dwelling for the sum of 25,000 francs, at least 10,000 more than it was worth. But had its owner asked half a million, it would unhesitatingly have been given. The very same day, the occupants of the apartments on the fifth floor of the house now became the property of Dante, 
were duly informed by the notary, who had arranged the necessary transfer of deeds, etc., that the new landlord gave them their choice of any of the rooms in the house, without the least augmentation of rent, upon condition of their giving instant possession of the two small chambers they at present inhabited. This strange event aroused great wonder and curiosity in the neighbourhood of the Allée de Meillon, and a multitude of theories were afloat, none of which was anywhere near the truth. But what raised public astonishment to a climax, and set all conjecture at defiance, was the knowledge that the same stranger, who had in the morning visited the Allée de Meillon, had been seen in the evening walking in the little village of the Catalan, and afterwards observed to enter a poor fisherman's hut, and to pass more than an hour in inquiring after persons who had either been dead or gone away for more than fifteen or sixteen years. But on the following day the family from whom all these particulars had been asked received a handsome present, consisting of an entirely new fishing boat with two sen and a tender. The delighted recipients of these munificent gifts would gladly have poured out their thanks to their generous benefactor, but they had seen him upon quitting the hut merely give some orders to a sailor, and then, springing lightly on horseback, leave Marseille by the port d'Aix. End of chapter 25 So when Barbara called, she said, she has read ahead, and one of the things that she realizes is that this book is really the beginning, and I completely agree with her, of that international man of mystery. I think it's fair to say that he is related to a Byronic hero in that kind of brooding, quiet, he's not really going to reveal the inner workings of his heart to you kind of way. But this guy's different, palpably different. He's more modern, I think, and much more a man of action. I mean, what does Dante do? Immediately, vote for Jacopo, find out what happened to my dad, find out what happened to Mercedes, let's get a move on and figure out how I can get my life back. Oh, and by the way, while I'm at it... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I need to find out what happened to those guys who put me in jail. So he he does this great thing. He gets the boat for Jacopo. Admittedly, there is a very simple string attached. Jacopo, of course, not at all unhappy to perform the task of going and finding out the sad news. But did you also catch that he gave gifts to the other smugglers and said specifically to the head dude, I'm going to keep in touch. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Because here he's playing off that he's a rich kid, kid in quotation marks, whose family just didn't understand him. And so he took to the sea to kind of get back at them and at the same time get some distance. And when he showed back up, hey, my uncle left me all this money. So yay. Well, if that's really your MO, why would you want to stay in touch with a smuggler? Dumas does some really interesting things with our smugglers. And we saw it when Edmund is, is sitting there having fake fallen and hurt himself. And he thinks, wow, this is where I find real friendship. Huh. That moment, coupled with this moment, where these people who were in societal sweeping generalizations, these are people of a lower order, which is not to say that Edmund was born to great wealth or anything, but he was a skilled worker. He was a skilled sailor. He was ready to command the ship. He had already learned languages. I mean, this was a guy who even before he met Faria, he was going to be better respected than a bunch of smugglers. And yet, all of the people who we saw hurt Edmond early on, 
had established themselves in their lives as people of respect and respect that would have been recognized by society at large. Even Caterus, he is originally not presented to us as a drunk. He's presented to us as somebody who had enough money to loan a pretty chunk of money to Edmund when he needed it, and also as a tailor. He's a skilled workman as well. And these guys are the guys who put Edmund in prison. But it's a political prisoner and a bunch of smugglers who were the first people to really treat Edmund well in his adult life, kind of ever, outside of his family. This is huge because in the 1830s and 1840s, it's pretty much understood that people from those classes, and I'm saying that pejoratively, can't possibly feel the same way we do or think the same way we do or even have ethics and morals as we do. I mean, they're dirty. If they cared, they would clean themselves up. This is the same stuff that got said about the Okies in California. We keep going back to the same thing over and over and over again, and it just drives me nuts. But here we see it in the hands of Dumas being turned on its ear. Now, this book was very popular. It's stayed popular. It is not a small investment of time to read, but it very clearly early on starts to subvert what you think you believe, if you lived back then, about people and society and morality. And it got me thinking. This chapter was a happy chapter. Melancholy moments. Absolutely, his father is dead. But then he buys the house. And he doesn't just buy the house to get those rooms for himself. He lets the couple have any bigger, nicer apartment in the building for no more rent because they were nice to him. And he's got money to burn. So, yeah, here, you did something for me. I do something for you. There's a social contract in Edmund's world. The Genoese shipbuilders, they have plenty of time to rebuild a ship. They are not going to lose any money. They made lots more money off of selling this little yacht to Edmond. And does he feel swindled because he paid more than the selling price? No. Once he takes that boat out and he sees how well it behaves under his hand, he's thrilled. He got the value that he wanted and needed for his money. He's already setting himself up in a very different relationship to money, but also to the way the world works. The ship that he gives to the little fishing boat that he gives to the Catalan family who entertained him for an hour while he tried to find out what happened to Mercedes. These are people he rewards as well. He gives the double Napoleon, the the gold piece to the sailor. And then when the guy's like, dude, you made a mistake. Oh, here, have another. I mean, he's he's loving having money, right? I mean, that's got to be part of it is just, well, I have it now. Let me let me just dole some out here. And that's fun. But there's also some other stuff going on underneath this. Edmund is getting the fun stuff out of the way now, but he knows in the back of his mind and not just in the back of his mind. It's very much in the forefront of his mind that he is going to eventually have to really set to to get back at the guys who destroyed his life. And we've seen Edmund's rebirth, his baptism from being tossed out of the Chateau d'If into the ocean. We've seen him reemerge as a grown-up, for one thing, also as a, a man who is driven on many fronts, and as someone who is relentlessly committed 
to his path. Now, he has interpreted all of the things that have happened to him, like getting the treasure, as a sign that God has given him all the things that he needs to be able to pursue this path of vengeance. But vengeance is right. And it's not the right word for it, because I always think of vengeance as being something that is fiery and fast and angry. And he may be angry, but he's moving slowly towards his target. It's kind of like the beginning of the cask of Amontillado. It wouldn't be enough for me to punish him at length. I would be avenged. It's going to take a while. And when I get that satisfaction, they're going to know it was me. And right now he seems to be hiding who he is. But as I was reading through some of those sections where he's kind of talking to himself philosophically or thinking about God and God's position in this chessboard that we now have in front of us, as we often do in these kinds of books. The line from, oh, I think it's Romans, that's quoting a line from Deuteronomy. It's, uh, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. This is another one of those places. I know we've talked a while ago about the Abraham Isaac story and how inflection changes everything in that story. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, also changes remarkably depending on inflection. For example, if you imagine an angry God who is the guy in the clouds shaking his fist and, and saying, vengeance is mine. That's one image of a wrathful God, right? It's a little different if God is saying to you, hey, vengeance is mine. You don't have to bear that burden. I take care of death. I take care of punishment. I'm the one who makes those hard decisions. You, you go have a life. I'll do the hard stuff. That's a completely different read than I've ever had on that line. And it just popped into my head last night. And I thought, ooh, ooh. Oh, no, this is going to play out interestingly, as you will see in our next chapters. All right, that's it for me. I am out of here. I may be in Syracuse next week. I don't know. We'll see how things go. I'll talk to you soon, though. Take care. Have a great one. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 